0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 110 Glean. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are here in the second mini series exploring the subject of what we're calling and what others are calling spiritual entrepreneurship or spiritual enterprise or spiritual innovation. These are folks, many of them are rabbis, not necessarily all, who are trying to create new examples of Jewish community, Jewish meaningful experience, Jewish connection, etc., etc., outside of the context of your typical synagogue experience. Some of the innovators that we're talking to actually are leading synagogues, and some of them are leading synagogue-adjacent organizations, and some of them are leading organizations that are not really much like synagogues at all, at least from the outside. We're really interested to explore these types of new initiatives, and we're looking at them in the context of two organizations that are helping these types of new initiatives come about. The last series, we talked to the folks from the Open Door Project, which is sponsored by Moisha House and led by George wilichowski And today we are beginning a series looking at organizations sponsored by Glean, which is a program of CLAL, the organization that we've talked to quite a few of its leaders over the last few months. And CLAL is running something it's calling the Glean Incubator. We're going to learn a lot more about the Glean Incubator from its founding director, Elon Babchuk, who is our guest today. Elon Babchuk is the director of innovation at CLAL and the founding director of the Glean Incubator, which he describes as an ecosystem of support where spiritual entrepreneurs receive training, coaching, and mentorship. The Glean Incubator includes a variety of consulting and coaching, but it also includes a course in entrepreneurship that's run in collaboration with Columbia Business School. Elon Babchuk has rabbinic ordination from the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, and he also has an MBA. He was the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in Providence, Rhode Island, where he became the first religious leader to be named one of the city's Ten to Watch by Providence Monthly magazine. Elon first got involved with KLAL as a member of its Rabbis Without Borders program. We talked with its director, Rabbi Rebecca Sirbu, some months ago, And he's like the guy who loved the product so much that he stopped being only a client and became also a producer. So he came over to Klal and launched the Glean Incubator as part of his work as Director of Innovation. We're really excited to begin this conversation on the work of the Glean Incubator, and we're super excited about the conversations that we're going to be having in the weeks ahead with folks that Klal has been working with in this innovation department. Elon Babchuk, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, we've been looking forward to having you. So um, you know, it's interesting that, that Clal has been around for, for a long time and, and thinking incredible forward-thinking thoughts. And uh, the director of innovation is a new position over there. So it would be great if you could give us a sense of what Clal's ambition is now to be starting an innovation department and to have a director of innovation, and, and what it is that, that you do there, and what's the landscape that you're addressing.
1: You know, I, I was brought on with one particular role in mind, and then that's grown and evolved over time. And that that job was really uh, building an incubator. Probably my first six months, talked to 150 different entrepreneurs from all backgrounds, all faiths, all um, domains, and their stories. I tried to just listen to what you know what made them tick. What what made them feel like you know there's this opportunity in the world that I really just won't be able to live with myself if I don't go for it so on and so forth. And I did that for about six months and at the same time talked to a number of different incubators in the Jewish world and the other domains. And I did all of that basically so I can get a real sense of what's happening in the landscape and develop a theory of change that we at Klau could use uh, to apply to the work that we do. And look, the number one job here was, uh, we know that there's an emergent moment. We know that there is an incredible amount of creativity just bursting at the seams, but those seams are on the margins of Jewish life. And I wanted to bring that that energy from the margin. I want to bring that energy from the margins into the center. I spend about 50% of my time working inside of synagogues and federations and foundations and the other 50% working on startups. So as the director of innovation, the first thing I did after those six months was began to develop um, the, just the... As my colleague Alan Harlem likes to say, throw a sheet over the ghost to start to give a little bit of shape to how it is that we're going to come alongside these entrepreneurs. How are we going to actually serve them? And the beginnings of the way that that took shape were with a conversation with Ashley Zwick. Now Ashley Zwick is the director of the Columbia, the Lane Center for Entrepreneurship at Columbia University. I had this amazing meeting with her. It was, you know, I'm, I live here in Providence, Rhode Island and I was, I went to New York City and I, I just, I felt like I was like a country bumpkin trying to find my way around. So of course I get lost on the train. I'm 30 minutes late to the meeting with this like incredibly important, smart uh, person who, who could do my job with her hands tied behind her back just to, so I can pick her brain, and I'm 30 minutes late, and she, we sat down on the couch. She gave me this incredible tour, and she was so gracious, and when I started talking about the shift in the American religious landscape, about all of the shifts that are taking place, how the, the world really, underneath our feet, is, it's like the tectonic plates just have not stopped grinding against one another, and we are in the midst of incredible movement, uh, she was very taken by it. And she connected me in turn to someone named Jack McGordy, who's the Director of Global Entrepreneurship and also the Founding Director of Venture for All, both at Columbia Business School. And his own mission is about getting the tools of entrepreneurship into the hands of people who otherwise don't have access to them. And, uh, and when we had this conversation, he immediately said, we're going to work together. I don't, I'm going to tell you, I don't know how, I don't know when, but, I'm, but we're going to work together. And two months later, we had our first cohort of Glean Incubator with 12 brave, courageous, brilliant, visionary, prophetic rabbis.
2: One thing that's fun for us as hosts and for our listeners when we're, when we're doing all this is to hear a little bit about the people. I mean, so often folks are excited to talk about the work that you're doing, and it's great to hear about the, the partnerships you're starting to forge at, at CLOW with Columbia and otherwise. But why you, Alan Babchuk, at CLOW doing this Jewish innovation stuff? What's getting you to this place that causes you to want to think about any of these questions about the future of religion or Judaism?
1: It's a great question. Uh, by the way, that's also what makes this podcast so special, that you actually, you, you, you privilege people over programs. And that's one of our values at CLAW. I'll tell you this, my most of my Jewish journey happened in a church. So I grew up in, in the Boston area, and uh, my parents were two of the first, I don't know, 10 or 20 families to make up the Newton Center Minion. And it was for, you know, that community itself was built for a number of reasons, but largely because, you know, it's like the... Uh, you know, the Goldilocks store. No, is it Goldilocks? Yeah, the Goldilocks store. They kind of look around the porridge at this show was was not welcoming and the porridge at this show had nothing for, um, you know, recent, uh, uh, people who recently moved here from Israel and this one wasn't good with, and, and finally they said, you know what? Why, we got enough people around the table to set up chairs and, you know, read Torah. Why don't we just make it ourselves? And so it started in a living room, Rabbi Dick Israel and, uh, and his wife, Sherry, Rabbi uh, Dick Israel passed away of blessed memory. And, uh, and then eventually when it got big enough, moved to a church and it was a church in Newton center. And so most of my formative memories were inside of that church. And my bar mitzvah was under a 30 foot cross. Uh, but one of the, I think what the reason why I say that that actually set me on the path to where I am today, uh, is because when you're a part of that Newton center minion, there are some days where you're the rabbi, right? You're just any old person, you're a lay leader, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to give the sermon that day. And that meant that you had to sort of dig deep inside yourself and, inside and, and look for the Torah that was going to uh, speak to you and, and hopefully to the rest of the folks in the community. And then there were some days where you're the janitor. And that means that you're the one who is cleaning up. You're the one who's picking up the entom and crumbs from the ground that all the kids dropped all over the floor. And you're the one setting up the chairs and cleaning up the chairs. And I literally grew up inside of an incubator that was the living manifestation of that Hasidic story about the two notes in your pocket, uh, or the, you know, the Hasidic mandate to every single morning you wake up and in one pocket, the world was actually created for me. And in the other pocket, um, I'm just but dust and ashes. And, and it, it was that type of environment where, where every single person mattered. But I'd say the next step in the journey, I kind of stumbled into it backwards and I probably went into it for the wrong reasons. Um, When I was 17, my father was diagnosed with cancer and the doctor said "You know, he's got about five years and the first six months were horrible. Um, I really felt a lot of pressure to be able to um, support the family and and give back as much as I could or at least at the very least support myself and I was going to college soon thereafter. So with a good friend of mine, I started this painting company this felt like the only tangible thing that I could do to solve that problem. And, and uh, one of the last conversations I had with my father, I had gone out and bought a car that no 20-year-old 20, 20 should ever own. It was too fast. It was too expensive. But, you know, we made a little bit of money in the painting company, and I, I knew he had come out of remission, and I knew the clock was ticking. And for some reason, it was kind of this misguided attempt to show him that we were going to be okay. And so I went out and I got this car and I drove it home and it was a six-speed transmission and I remember he kind of very gingerly comes out, walks out to the driveway. The car is—it's like this European car. So the car door is really too heavy and he opens the door and and he sits in the car and then I just and I'm driving like forty miles an hour, taking turns in like second gear, going crazy. And finally, I get back to the house just to kind of show him, look how fun this car is, da 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 da. And I get into the park uh, into the driveway. And I, I rush around the car, open the door and help him up. We're now standing between my new car that I bought for all the wrong reasons from the company that I started for all the wrong reasons. And between that car and the old Volvo station wagon with 200,000 miles on it that he and my mom drove me to soccer practice for many, many years. And he, he says, you know, Elon, I hope you enjoy this car. And I, he said, I hope you, you drive it a little bit slower next time and be safe with it and and I hope I hope you love it and it treats you well but I just want you to know I was gonna give you the Volvo he knew why I went into that business he knew why I bought that car and I didn't even have to tell him and and he was somebody who sure you know lived with regret made mistakes but did everything with a whole heart and I think in in that moment what he was telling me and maybe this is revisionist history but it really felt like what he was telling me is listen you got to leave this world just a little bit better than how you found it. Um, he passed away about two weeks later and I sat Shiva and I looked around the room and it was the most uplifted I had felt in five years because I was surrounded by stories uh, you know from all the people that we grew up with surrounded by food I was surrounded by prayer and it took a few years to sort of uh, you know I was kind of like a pinball bouncing around career-wise until I finally figured out where I needed to be and who I needed to be in the next round of, of my own life. And that was to um to put myself in a leadership role uh where I actually served others, and where I wasn't the one in the front of the room where I could follow and where I could help others find their own path and their own torah and um and that's what I do today
0: so I know that you went to rabbinical school and business school which order did that happen in and and how did you sort of make the transition from going the the way that I think typical rabbinical students go, which is that they go and become a congregational rabbi, which you did, and and now you're doing this. So how did that part of the journey go?
1: I uh, had interest in taking some business classes, and while I was in rabbinical school the first year or two, and by the way, I went to the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies largely uh, because it was a place that from the the moment I applied, made it very clear that I was welcome there and I was not someone who, you know, knew how to lead services and I wasn't the USY. I went to one USY event and it was terrible and I never went again. Right. So I was not that straight and narrow person. Uh, my first year I started taking a couple of business classes, just like cherry picking them. I took a class on executive leadership. I thought it would be interesting. I took another class on, um, fundraising. I thought it'd be interesting, mostly just to dabble. Um, and then, uh, one Friday night, my second year of rabbinical school, um, I was crossing the street with uh, uh, my good friend, Scott Chaffrin, who's now a rabbi uh, in St. Louis. And, and who was I, my
2: camp counselor?
1: Oh, that's right. You guys yep. are from the same neck of the woods. Oh, I can see it now. He clearly had a good impact on <laughs> you. For <done>. sure. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and my fiance, who later became my wife, um, Lizzie. And we're crossing the street, coming home from a Friday night dinner, and um, a truck runs a red light and, uh, and hits, hits all three of us. I was a couple steps ahead. Um, so, I kind of got hit right in the, the I, I went right into the hood of the tru- uh, of the of the truck and it threw me about thirty five or forty feet and almost killed me. I was taken to a, a hospital we were actually taken to separate hospitals um, i didn 't have my wallet on me because it was friday night and i didn't carry i didn 't carry my wallet with me so i didn 't have my insurance or my id and of course we 're in Los Angeles Southern California, so there is literally a a section of Cedar Sinai Hospital for quote unquote cash patients, and we know what that means um, and and uh, very quickly they they um, as soon as I, I was as soon as I came to as soon as I uh, was able to respond to what they had to say i couldn 't move my arms and i couldn 't move my legs and I had all kinds of um, you know uh, catastrophic injuries and i said where's you know where 's Lizzie and they said well we can 't call her we just we just need us we need you to sign this form i said i can 't move my arms i can 't sign the form and and um, eventually she, had a, a, she was able to find me. I left a message on her cell phone because one of the nurses was kind enough to give me the, the, her cell phone. And anyway, long story short, I had reconstructive surgery and um, had to miss quite a bit of school. And I was in a wheelchair for, for quite a bit of time. I knew that I didn't want to just sit and and feel bad for myself the entire time. And frankly, the experience of being treated like an undocumented, like a, like a quote unquote illegal immigrant, uh, by the hospital system really woke me up. Oh my God, I'm in the midst of, of some of the most irresponsible bureaucratic systems that treat people worse than, when, worse than one would treat a dog. And, and being on, the, on the, the receive, and by the way, not only did I have insurance, I had two insurances and neither of them covered what I did. I left the hospital four days later with about $360,000 of, of medical debt. And I sat with Lizzie and, and I sat with my family and tried to figure out, well, what, what do I want to do in this moment to actually embrace this opportunity? Because no crisis should ever um, be, you know, every, every crisis is actually an opportunity to embrace. So I spent the next year working as a community organizer for, for One LA, which is part of the Saul Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundation. Uh, spent most of my time during the day in mid-city and South Los Angeles. Um, and most of my time at night in business school.
0: Zabi, so, so that's an incredible uh, story. I, I think I'm sure we'll we'll return to it. But so, so then you you end up graduating from rabbinical school and you have an MBA, but then you, you went
1: to be a congregational rabbi, right? hmm I said, you know what? I know I want to get back to the Northeast. I know I want to be close to family. My wife's family is also from the Boston area. And our son, Micah had was just... My, my wife was eight and a half months pregnant as I was going through the placement process, and um, and Micah was born uh, April fifteenth of twenty twelve, right around the time that we were making all of these decisions. So I knew, you know what? Let me at least let me at least go to the best community I can possibly find. And I interviewed all kinds of different jobs: Hillels, day schools, synagogues. I I want to find the place that really. Where the, it feels like the warmest community with the most potential for me to actually engage and bring whatever skill sets and for me to learn um, and 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 that really was here in Providence uh, I worked at a, a synagogue here in Providence for four years and was able and and they they to their credit gave me an incredible amount of flexibility around um, trying new things We were the second synagogue in the country to move to a gift of the heart voluntary contribution model um, and in turn we uh, you know we brought in enough new members to build a separate synagogue if we wanted to. There were that many people who came in, not only because it was cheaper, but because we changed the, what our value proposition was actually going to be. When you have the conversations with people and try to understand where they're coming from and what they're hoping to achieve, not just we're not just solving the problem of becoming a member. We're solving the pro, real real progress that they're trying to make in their lives. But it was really time for me to to move on to what what was next. I, I was sort of at a crossroads in my own life of okay, I can stick around and, and maybe be a part of this, this community for a much longer time. Um, or now's the time for me to know, okay, I'm not ready to make that type of commitment. Let me move on to what's next. And it all just kind of came together in this very emergent way where the relationships that I had and I cherished from you know my year as a rabbi without borders fellow, my relationships with Rabbi Rebecca Serbu and Erwin uh, Kula and Brad Hirschfield. um, to the Torah that they actually taught me, which was, it took a couple of years to gestate um, and 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 begin to come to fruition, but it was just starting to blossom at that moment. And that's when I knew that the next step was beginning to unfold. And I didn't know where it was going to take me, but, uh, but I knew it was time.
0: What is it that makes the distinction between those rabbis who um, have the potential to sort of go out and create something entrepreneurial and then I, I guess two questions, you know, why is it that some do end up pursuing that direction and, and are able to bring themselves to sort of leave the congregational rabbinate and some, I know a lot, feel sort of stuck there um, and would, would wish that they could do something else, but they somehow they don't end up doing it. and And then once those go out and try... You know, what are the obstacles that they face that, that Glean, the Glean Incubator was really trying to sort of help them get get through to the next stage after having said, yeah, I'm, I'm here, I want to found something. But but then what what has to happen next for that to sort of end up as as a valid career for them?
1: The first thing I'll say is this, in my graduating class 2012, there were, I don't know what it was, 25 rabbis between a Ziegler School and, and, and JTS. You know, I, I went back and I looked at the spreadsheet that some, one of the sort of uh, very helpful rabbis who was in placement made a little Google spreadsheet so we could all see who's getting interviews where. And we were very transparent with each other. It was, it was actually one of the most anxious times of our lives and there was real community built. Anyway, and I look back at who was getting the most calls, like who was getting all the different callbacks um, to the communities. And I, of the top, I think at this point, of the top 10, just in terms of numbers, and this is not scientific, but just in terms of numbers, seven are already out of the pulpit. That says something. In a lot of ways, rabbinical schools have been training rabbis for jobs that don't exist. Right? There's, a, there's this idealized version A of rabbi, B of institution, and C of what it means to actually serve people. And the number one thing that, that happens to assistant rabbis that go into large pulpits, what, it's not, oh, tell me, like, what, what's your Torah? Tell me, like, what's the, what's the transformational thing that you want to teach that really is going to be infectious? It's how are you going to find young people to fill the seats in the pews? The young people don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I wish I had a pew to sit in, right? There's not one of them that, that has that problem to solve. But it just turns out that once you start working for an institution who's really focused on that one metric, or maybe two, money and members, right? In the, in the Christian world, they say butts, budgets, and buildings. But if, when you work for an institution that only focuses on, on those things, well, what you focus on, Adrian Marie Brown says this in Emergent Strategy, what you pay attention to grows. And if you then focus your entire energy on getting butts in the seats or on recruiting new members, well, then you actually start to, to objectify the people whose it was your mission to become a rabbi to serve them. And then when they don't come, you resent them and you feel bad about it. And it becomes this really vicious cycle where I've been aboard, People start talking about recruiting millennials, but they're talking about millennials like it's a, like it's a curse word. You know. Like the, if you were to replace the word millennial with any other minority group in America, how would that actually sound? Fill the sentence in. Oh, all millennials are this. All millennials are that. And, and you start objectifying an entire group or, quote, unquote, a customer segment like that. You're not actually trying to serve them. You're not trying to figure out what makes them tick. You're not trying to figure out what problems they have in their lives and what keeps them up at night or maybe the the inspiration that gets them out of bed in the morning. And you're just trying to get them in the door because getting them in the door seems to be the job to be done. But there's not one synagogue that was founded in the early 1900s where four, five, six people created the first board of trustees, put the shovel in the ground to build the building and said, you know what we really want to do? We want to make sure that 100 years from now, people walk into the building. That's not why they built what they built.
2: When you are working with these with these existing congregations with institutions that maybe they're long standing maybe they're newer I don't know um what are some of the strategies that you're encouraging them to use what are the the ways the the reconceptualizations that you're encouraging them to undertake and maybe and you know maybe we'll get to this a little later but maybe how does that dovetail with work you're seeing that's outside of the existing legacy institutions
1: in terms of what that what we do with um you know synagogues and federations and other I've adopted an approach called the three-box solution. So the three-box solution was—it's uh, based on a concept by Vijay Gar- Garindarajan, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. And um, one of the first test uh, test cases was with Hasbro Toy Company. So Has—everyone's heard of Hasbro. And you know, when I, the second my plane arrived. In Providence, someone you know from the synagogue picked me up and handed me a Mr. Potato Head because that's like the pride of Providence. Yeah, if you weren't going to name
2: it, I was because you know we oh got no, two absolutely. Providence folks <laughs> on the show for the first time. We got yeah.
1: But Hasbro Toy Company, the the actual history of it is it used to be a textile company, then it was a pencil company, and then the cost of pencils got too high. So uh, it, it's a it was a group of brothers, and some of the brothers went off and started making toys, and the others stuck with the pencil company. Right? Now, over the years, in the 90s, if you asked Hasbro, what kind of company are you, we're a toy company. So we are in the toy product business. Now business started to get real bad about 20 years ago. So they, what they developed was this model where we're, on, in box one, we're gonna make what we do today to serve today's customers as efficient and effective as possible. We're gonna, if it's Mr. Potato Heads, we're gonna streamline the Mr. Potato Head production, so that we can really get the most out of it and our customers are served best. Box three, we need to start developing some new innovations around um, our entire business model. The, who are we gonna serve tomorrow? What are we, what are we gonna serve tomorrow? Now, here's the, anyone can do those two things. Anybody can do those two things. But when we're talking about the religious world, box two is the hardest. Box two is what do I need to stop doing in order to create the bandwidth so that I can do box one well, and I can do box three well, and that's going to be any CEO's job in a moment of change is going to be how do I allocate the resources so that I'm not just paying lip service to innovation, but that we're really investing in it and not and I don't run away the second we have a failure, I actually embrace it, run towards it, I learn from it, and then the, I know that by the second and third and fifth and tenth iteration of it, it might actually provide value to the people that we hope to serve. you know if you ask a rabbi what what he or she is doing in the pulpits well Judaism is all about transforming people. It's out helping make, make them better people and so on and so on. Yeah, a million different versions of that, that sort of human transformation, right? And I said, well, how do you know if you're doing a good job? What are you measuring? Well, we measure attendance, okay? So if you are promising transformation and you're measuring attendance, you are in the entertainment industry. You cannot say, You cannot claim transformation when the only way that you know if you're doing a good or a bad job is how many people are showing up right if we're preaching about joy i want you to measure how many parties your congregants are having i don't want you to measure uh, you know how many people are showing up to your sermon on joy because at that point you're just you're just measuring attendance at services or how many people want to stay for lunch afterwards
0: but in your experience uh, doing this as a congregational rabbi and and then in your experience watching or uh, helping other legacy institutions try to do this how how do they actually move stuff into box two, into that stop doing area? You know that that because I think that the the challenge is I've always understood it from the literature on on uh, disruptive or nonlinear innovation is that the reason why it's so hard to move things into box two is that there's somebody who's a constituent of that work and there's somebody who's going to be very very angry if you stop doing anything. Um, because if you're doing something that literally nobody's participating in, then it's relatively easy to stop doing it. You might have to get over some psychological barriers, but the harder ones are are when there's a constituency for, for some of those things. So and that's in a, you know, and, and the reason why a startup is, is a lot easier is because it doesn't have any constituency yet. And so there's no constituency behind any particular thing. So you can start and stop doing whatever you want at the beginning. So, how do, how do you see legacy institutions
1: actually successfully navigate that? For a lot of people, there's something called an endowment effect, which is that they're going to be a lot less likely to give up what they already have. They're going to value what they already have a lot more than what they might gain right and so with the endowment effect in really in full effect especially in this moment when there's a fight flight or freeze response and most people are just freezing right that that what we really need to do is make sure they understand what the actual risks are. You know, I have a, 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 a friend, um, Patrick Duggan, who's the executive director of the Church Building and Loan Fund for the United Church of Christ. He stood in front of his leadership. There are 5,000 churches with the UCC, and the Church Building and Loan Fund is an endowment to do exactly what it says. They build churches, and they make loans to fix them, right? And he stood up in front, Of that entire group and said if we keep going down this path we will have zero members in the year 2041 is it good enough for me to stick with cold comfort for the next 23 years and be just fine and happy doing what I do and by the way you're probably not going to be fine and happy because most people walk into a sanctuary and they they look at the empty seats not the full ones so you're not going to be happy but you can convince yourself you're going to be for the next 23 years and then you will be completely out of business so you need to decide Knowing that, are you ready to go all in or not? There is an incredible amount of pressure on pulpit rabbis in this day and age to deliver box one and box three without any, with entirely skipping over box two. There's a whole section in the Talmud about holidays that didn't make it. Irwin, uh, Rabbi Erwin Kula, is a, a co-president of Klaal always talks about Yom Nicanor. How many people here still celebrate Yom Nicanor or Yom Taryanus? Well, we don't because they're not working anymore. So the rabbis were able to say, let's put them to bed. Now, how did they know it was time to put them to bed? Because people stopped celebrating them and their job was done. We don't need to celebrate those things anymore. So I think we need to be real serious about what is actually getting a job done in people's lives.
0: As I thought about this stuff, I've been impressed with two ancient Jewish technologies uh, that are involved in this, which I'm not sure really function anymore. And that's part of the problem. One is the technology of studying Uh, Jewish texts that we no longer observe. So, you know, reading the whole Talmud, even though much of it has to do with stuff that we don't observe, the sacrifices and whatever, right? And I actually think it's interesting to think about that as a psychological technology that allows us to stop doing things because we know, well, we're at least going to still... Uh, Keep a little bit in touch with it. We're going to study it. We're going to take it seriously. If it ever should turn out that for some reason in the future we need that again, we know we still know about it because we've been studying it all along. So it's a little bit more okay to stop doing it, you know. And then related to that is the concept of the Messiah. You know, the idea that one day somebody's going to come back and bring all these old discarded, lost practices back. You know, again, potentially gives you some psychological relief to say, well, you know, it's okay if I stop doing this because the Messiah will bring it back one day if it turns out that it should have been brought back, you know. Now, I'm not really sure that that, um, particularly the latter, works works very well uh, for many Jews today. But I do think it sort of points to the need for sort of practical solutions to some of these things, right? Not just new ideas, but actually practical tools. I mean, I remember I was working once with a synagogue, a couple of synagogues that really should have merged and one of the reasons why they didn't end up merging was because one of the synagogues had a, a, an absolutely stunning, an absolutely stunning building, um, with beautiful stained glass windows. And just you know, it's sort of tragic to imagine that that building would no longer be the synagogue, even though it really had to be in the other building. And I just was remember sitting there thinking, like, if we had the holodeck from Star Trek, this problem would be solved. You know, if we could, if we could create a. a, a true to life hologram of this beautiful synagogue. And then you knew that if I ever felt nostalgia for that old, beautiful building, I could just go into this room and switch on something and I would be there again, you know, and I only need to be there for like five seconds and to get that experience that I'm looking for. And how tragic is it that something that needs to be done is not going to be done because some folks need that five second jolt of of memory And that's a serious need. But is there some way that we could give it to them in some other way? You know, and and so I, I struggle with this, too, like thinking about, you know, well, what kind of practical ideas can we offer people in legacy institutions who feel a strong sense of not only nostalgia, but a strong sense of meaning from many of the things that that are done uh, by that legacy institution but that as you say if we charged the people who actually come to shabbat services if we actually charged them the membership dues that it costs for their participation it would probably be something
1: like $10,000 a year in the year 70 the destruction of the temple what would it have been like to be a priest in that moment it's not just a building it is literally your identity you are a priest. Your job is to essentially a governing bo- the governing uh, uh, a body of Jewish life in that moment. And it was all going away. So yes, we love to talk about how Yochanan ben Zakkai left Jerusalem, you know, because he had this deal with Vespasian and he left in a coffin and went to this little town outside of Tel Aviv. And we love to imagine, uh, it's called Yavne. We love to imagine, I talk about Providence like Yavne and I talk about St. Louis as Yavne because we do work there. And I talk about Phoenix and I love doing that. But we can't actually start that incredibly difficult work until we can imagine what it was like to talk to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai at that moment as a priest, knowing it was all going away and everything was going to shift. Would you have made that leap? Would you have said, well, yeah, there's a good chance my job is going to be gone. There's a good chance that everything I know about Jewish life is going to be over. But maybe the next couple thousand years are going to be pretty exciting. Maybe people are going to be served. Maybe there's going to be some technologies like the Passover Seder that are actually going to help people experience what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land, right? Maybe, maybe, but we don't know. So I think the ones who are successful are the ones who can see it from both sides and have a real passionate, serious, intellectual, thoughtful, emotionally charged argument and discussion about what it's like to be on both of those sides. And until that happens, the people in the, you know, in legacy institutions are going to resent the entrepreneurs and think, well, they've got it easy they've got it good because they don't have to do any grief work. And the entrepreneurs are going to look at the legacy institutions and say, oh my God, they have endowments. They don't even know what they're doing with them. I've got this great idea and I have no one to fund it. And we're all going to have this, like the key not so frame, this, the jealousy among scribes that, that actually isn't going to be so pure. And one of the most important tenets that I learned as a community organizer is before you can even imagine yourself working in a community, in a neighborhood with a group of people, you actually have to walk the neighborhood many times over. You have to walk the neighborhood in the morning and feel what it's like and what sounds are there and which dogs are barking at you. And you have to walk in the middle of the day and who's at home and who's doing what. You have to walk at night and do you hear gunshots, do you not? And until you do that every single, you know, at every single stroke of the clock, you have no business working in that neighborhood. And so for me, what that means, at, you know, really, I see myself as a servant leader, specifically in the margins, is that I want to really understand what makes the people tick who are here. And, and how can I best partner with them, walk along the journey with them, walk alongside them, and, and in my role today with CLAL, bring all the resources to bear that might help them thrive.
0: So let's talk about the first uh, iteration of the Glean Incubator last year because we're going to be speaking with uh, a bunch of the folks that were part of that incubator. It's a really incredible group of people and I'd love to understand in a in a deep way sort of what was your thought going into creating this along with the folks at Columbia University Business School that here's what here's here's these people they they're trying to do a certain kind of thing in the world but they're, they're, they've got a block you know, in front of them, and we want to try to help them get over that, get over that obstacle. So how, do you, how, do you, how did you look at that landscape then? What, what was the program that you created to try to help these entrepreneurs, and, and what did you kind of learn from their experience?
1: When I became part of Rabbis Without Borders and I you know, really started tapping into my own network, talking to these 150 entrepreneurs, specifically the ones that were in the religious world, I thought, oh, my God. We are spending so much time embracing this narrative that everything is crashing down that we have completely missed the, the emergent uptick and groundswell of creativity, of courage, of bravery, of real honest-to-goodness Torah that's actually helping people you know, live great lives and, and um, become the people that they want to become people who believe in the transformative properties of Torah. That's, that's Rabbi Sarah Luria for you, who actually, she's crazy enough to think that t- Torah can actually transform your life. And then she built, oriented her entire life and her entire work around that concept. Who are the people who are somehow creating beautiful experiences, who are somehow designing transformative rituals, who are somehow building businesses that are actually thriving and serving people, who are somehow living out the Torah that they've been preaching in a way that's authentic and true? And that's how you find a Rabbi Sarah Luria. That's how you find a Rabbi Miriam Turlin Champ, Rabbi uh, Danny Eskow of Online Jewish Learn. That's how you find a Rabbi Jeff Middleman and, and Dan, all, all of the folks. And by the way, Rabbi Macka Wertz and Rabbi. Um, Karen Perelman from congregation, uh, from B'nai Jeshurun in uh, Short Hills, New Jersey, who they could coast for the next 50 years and have no problems. The money and members would be just fine. And the two of them are running around with a hair on fire problem that says, oh my God, how can we better serve our people? These are the people who are the prophets in this day and age. And what sets them apart, you know, and I've worked with with all the entrepreneurs I've worked with, I think what really sets apart folks like these is that anybody can lean into charisma and any one of those rabbis I just mentioned can command any size room in front of any group of people. I don't care who they are and when it is, right? But they don't rely only on charisma because that's not going to be what builds the next round of institutions. Those, those institutions, unfortunately, and it's sad to say, they're not going to make it in the next round. These are people who can lead from the front of the room, the back of the room, the middle of the room. They have incredible flexibility. These are people who listen before they talk. They listen to the cold mamadaka, they, they listen to the still small voice of the people that they're trying to serve, and then they orient their entire work lives around serving those needs.
0: So you're identifying these incredible people, and, and what is it that they don't have that you're, that you're trying
1: to give them? I don't care if you're building a widget or an app or a Jewish community, it's really lonely. You spend a lot of time in the margins. You spend a lot of time, you know, just trying to make payroll and just trying to make ends meet and just trying to just, trying to just try. And, um, and it's a very lonely job. Now, on top of that, you became a rabbi. You're, you're, you became a pastor. You became a, pre- I don't, whatever it is, whatever kind of spiritual leader you are, you, you bet your life on it. You are all in on whatever, you know, faith tradition that you're trying to put into action, whatever faith tradition you're trying to live out and help others live out too. And it's not just a product that you're selling. It's something that actually you hold deeply close to your heart and soul. And that's, man, that's, that's hard to put that on the line. That's, that takes real courage to put that on the line, but it's lonely work. And also if you're the type of spiritual entrepreneur who's building a community, you immediately will make enemies with almost every legacy rabbi, pastor, I don't care who it is, in the community because they see a zero-sum pie, and, and they see that, that there's one pie. It's not going to get bigger. It seems to be getting smaller, and if you're taking the slice of it, that's less that I get to eat. Whereas the spiritual entrepreneurs that I work with, they have this abundance mentality that actually anything is possible. And the more that we serve the people that we're trying to serve and live out the 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 Torah, the Gospel, whatever you call it, that we really want to live out, the pie is going to grow. There are those folks in the in the that 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 look at the you know American religious landscape and they say, Oh my God, seven to ten thousand churches are closing every single year in America, eight years running. Oh no. And then there are the folks that we work with who say, oh, my God, that's seven to 10,000 gorgeous buildings with immense capacity and seven to 10,000 communities of people that used to come here that might not be getting served right now. And why don't I just spend a little bit of time sitting inside that church, maybe sitting outside that church, maybe sitting in the community coffee shop right nearby and trying to understand what makes the people tick around it. And then maybe, maybe there's going to be something, going to be some way to actually serve those people that used to get served by the church. You have to make sure that every single person you interact with, if there's an opportunity to make that, to find that divine spark that they have and create an I-thou, this is a Martin Buber reference to so create an I-thou relationship and not an I-it. Well, if you can build an, uh, an enterprise, if you can build a venture, if you can build a community that really starts with the seek, the search for those divine sparks and giving yourself long enough to get illuminated by, by that glowing light that comes off of every person you, you sit with and you interact with, then I think you're actually going to be okay in this moment. And so we try to do that very same thing.
2: When I hear you mention a coffee shop, I sort of just have to stop and smile because anybody listening to this who lives in Providence and visits Seven Stars Bakery, it's, you know, a coffee shop in your neighborhood, Ilan, they're going to know that you walk the walk on this front because you are you're you're constantly out there in the community of people that you serve, even though at this point, I mean, you, you used to serve the conservative congregation in Providence, but you don't directly anymore. But still, these are, these are people that you serve as a spiritual leader. And so I'd love to hear from you a little bit on this point you made. What does it mean to be out there in the community? What does it mean to be outside the church or at the nearby coffee shop as you are? Why are you at Seven Stars so frequently? And what do you get out of that experience? And how are you able to serve the people that you interact with in those experiences?
1: I happen to just love Seven Stars Coffee, but I will say this about the coffee shop. I started spending, you know, when I was working in the synagogue my second or third year, about 50% of my time out of the building. And it happened to be that Friday mornings I would go do uh, office hours at Seven Stars Bakery. And the reason why I chose Friday is because it's, it happens to not be a kosher bakery, but it's the, only time of, it's the only place in town where you can get a decent challah on Friday. So all of these folks who I've never seen before, all of Rhode Island has 19,000 Jewish people. I think Providence might have uh, nine or 10. And people I never see before. It's a, this is not a big city. People I never see before coming into Baychala. And I would sit there because I, I study a, page, a daf of Talmud every single day. And I sit there sitting in front of my Talmud with my kippah on. And people would come up to me uh, and say, uh, are you a rabbi? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm a rabbi. Why do you ask? And they'd say, well, I'm a bad Jew. And I would say, well, what does that mean to you? And they say, well, I don't go to services because I don't like going to services. And I'd say, well, don't tell anyone this, but neither do I. And they'd say, well, well, <laughs> well fine. If you're a rabbi, then what is the – and, oh, and they'd say, what are you reading? And I'd say, I'm reading the Talmud. And they'd say, well, what does the Talmud have to say about my estranged brother? Or What does the Talmud have to say about my mom who's in hospice? Or What does the Talmud have to say about my son who was just diagnosed with special needs and I'm struggling to, to figure out how to best support him? And, and it was those conversations. I've built my life around those conversations. Everything I do is because of those conversations. And the day that I stop going to Seven Stars to, to, to be there for people and with people and really listen to what they're struggling with, what gets them out of bed and what keeps them up at night, that might be the day that I stop learning. And it's no coincidence that I study Daf Yomi, where I'm learning Talmud, the words 16, 1700 years old alongside the new scripture that's getting written today because that's the scripture of their lives and if i'm not listening to them and i'm only listening to the rabbis and vice versa if i'm only listening to them and i'm not listening to where we came from frankly i don't think my life would be all that interesting and i certainly don't think i would be serving the people in the way that i'm able to do today
2: so we're rounding out towards the close of the episode and you mentioned that there was a great story that you wanted to tell and share with our listeners. And I wanted to give you a chance to do that before we go, because I I think it really is a great, it would be a great note to sort of put the cherry on top of this conversation. So what was the story involving you and and your son and a friend that he identified in the parking lot of a restaurant?
1: After I left the pulpit, it was over the summer, and um, I was having Sunday brunch with um, my my wife and son. And um, we were at, we were on the on the water in Warren, Rhode Island. It's this gorgeous, like gorgeous background. uh, We're right on the, right on the coast. And uh, there's this great brunch place. So we're eating there and my son kind of looks up and he's very confused and looks a little worried. And um, he's, he's looking at the parking lot. And I said, you know, what's wrong, Micah? And he says, and my son's two years old at the time, two and a half. And he says, Abba, that, that poor man, I, I now see who he's looking at. And it's this guy who's just stepping out of a, a Bentley convertible. He says, about that poor man, that poor man. And the guy's got the top down. It's a gorgeous weather. And I said, I said, what's what poor man? That guy doesn't look poor to me, but what do I know? And he says, that poor man only has half a car, Abba. And he sees the guy has the top down and doesn't have a top. And I said, "I said, oh, Micah. And I, I don't want to correct him now because I think it's just so beautiful that he, he's got such compassion for this person. And I said, so what should we do? Um, and he says, well, Abba, we should give him mommy's car. <laughs> now, mommy's mommy's got a 2013 Honda CRV. I said, "Oh, Micah, I think he'll be okay." But it's it's just so great that you thought of him. And now, you know, it's cute and it's endearing when a two and a half year old projects problems onto somebody that they're not really experiencing. But what I found inside, you know, working inside of a synagogue and working with those who lead synagogues is that we are projecting problems onto people that we want to quote unquote recruit as members that they're not experiencing themselves, right? 10% of Americans are lapsed Catholics. Not one of them wakes up in the morning and says, oh my God, I'm lapsed. And, And people don't wake up and say, oh, I wish I could become a member, but I just don't know how to find the membership form. That's not a problem that they are actually trying to solve in their lives. So people might wake up and feel like I'm driving a you know, Bentley convertible right now. And here these people are telling me that I've got a problem to solve in my life that I really don't. And I think the more that we can actually focus on the human experience of the people that we try to serve and try to understand what actually is the problem in their life. What, are, what is the progress they're trying to make and what's the version of their ideal self that they want to achieve? And how can I walk alongside them and how can I leverage all the resources that we have in the synagogue to walk alongside them to get there? in such a way that actually fits with the mission and the ethos of who we are and who we're trying to be, then that's success. That's exactly what success looks like. And it's not always going to lead to more members or more money, but I actually think it it can lead us to a much higher plane than either of those metrics would dictate.
2: Thank you so much, Ilan Babchuk, for coming on. Thanks for being our first Providence guest, I think. Uh, so, you know... We're, we're outnumbering Chicago on this call for the first time. So take Providence that, Dan. Um, thanks so much for, for coming on, and uh, we'll have to continue the conversation sometime.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful, and i uh, looking forward to continuing to follow you're, you're, the journey of Judaism Unbound. You guys are, are onto something big and beautiful, and I'm grateful that, uh, that you're doing the work you do.
2: And with that, we're going to close out this episode and we want to do so just as we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us, all you out there who are listening. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. We also recently added a Twitter account, which you can follow at at Judaism Unbound. You can hit up our website, JudaismUnbound.com and also email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a monthly recurring basis or just a one-time gift. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.